Welcome to That'll Preach. This is a weekly podcast where we talk about all kinds of things, all kinds of fun things related to Christianity and theology and philosophy. And what else do we talk about, Paul? All kinds of stuff, right? Christianity and culture, theology, philosophy. We're trying to be the hippest new show on the airwaves here. And uh, I'm Brian. I'm joined with my co-host, Paul, who this is uh, a very unique situation right now because if you guys don't know paul used to live i almost said used to live with me (laughs) i mean close (laughs) enough he used to live in tallahassee and we would do this podcast live but he recently got a job not recently a couple months ago now he got a job in what's hillsdale michigan hillsdale michigan the center knows where i live the, <laughs> the center of civilization <laughs> where uh, Paul is just living it up as a bachelor out there, going to all the clubs, enjoying the nightlife, <laughs> all that stuff in Michigan that, that Hillsdale is known for. Uh, and and really, I mean, you really can't get better than the nightlife of a conservative Christian college. Oh, right? yeah. I'm pretty right. sure there's a Bible study happening literally outside my office right now. That's and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the wildest it gets is probably cow tipping or so apparently some students wrestled a sheep on one of the professor's lawns last year, which was pretty exciting. What kind of sheep was this? Like a massive, this was, this was like a, like a Easter feast. Like they got a sheep to, you know, slaughter it, prepare it. Are you have, serious? Yeah. Oh yeah. No, you're joking. I'm, I'm totally serious. They, they killed a sheep for yeah. what? For Easter, like an Easter dinner. No, you're joking. I'm totally serious. This was talk of the college. This was talk of the town. For like... This this is Southern Michigan. You eat lamb. You eat all this sort of stuff. I don't know. It just seems like... I mean, this is what the new covenant is about. They should read Hebrews, man. (laughs) You don't need to keep doing that. Therefore, we should never have lamb again. It's like you see that family the next week and they're wearing like a nice wool coat and you're like, oh, oh, no, you didn't get that at Goodwill. You're like, well, we got it cheap though. Let me tell you. I didn't know you had a soft spot for animals. No, I don't. Uh, But it just seems a little excessive. Don't you think? To kill a sheep? How else would you eat it? I just imagine there's like a tree stump and they just bring the sheep there and they take an ax and they just chop its head off or something. And then at the last second, the angel stops you with the there, Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Very biblical. But are you enjoying up there in Hillsdale, Paul? I miss you, Brian. Oh, look at that. Look at that. I can yeah, see your face. Good. If you could see Paul's face, you would see him say, you know, enjoys a very strong word. <laughs> <laughs> but you're, you know, you're a professor. What, what's that? Uh, I was just going to say, if we didn't do this, if you didn't tell everyone that we were in different spots, people would have just gone on totally unassuming, assuming that we were doing it normally. And then secrets out of the bag now. Cats out of the bag. Secrets out of the bag. Well, I mean, what are you teaching right now? Teaching philosophy. Teaching young minds how to be professional jerks, basically. Are all these kids like snowflakes? Can they not handle argument and rigorous debate and having their ideas challenged? No, I mean, they're, they're pretty good. They're, they care about the material. They want to learn. Hillsdale's a really good school. You should mm-hmm. come here, Brian. You might get the snowflake beaten out of you. 
Okay. All right. I'll be like a little, sh- I'll be like a sheep on Easter. You will just, just have this, <laughs> everything beaten out of me and just eaten. Uh, do but, you, uh, I, here, here's an honest question though. Do you miss me? No. Okay. Well, no, I do. For being honest. Of course I do. No, I do. Of course I miss you, Paul, you know, but I, I, I feel <clears> like <throat> you, you've gone for extended period. This is actually <laughs> welcome to that'll preach therapy session. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I've, I'm used to being gone, you being gone for like long periods of time and the, but then coming back and I'm like, Oh, but I'm like, you're not coming back. I feel yep, like you're like my dad. That like you're like some dad that abandoned his son or something. <laughs> <laughs> that got really dark. I know. I know. Well, but who started, knows? I might you be talked back. about it's the slaughter. Possible. I know that's true. That's true. If you uh, get a job down here, maybe at FSU, maybe at FAMU, Maybe or if we uh, start uh, Patriot University, the Zhang Theological Institute, ZTI, ZT. That sounds like a disease you get. <laughs> <laughs> From hanging anyway, out <laughs> I know. Oh man, we don't miss a beat, do we, Paul? We uh, don't this miss is how a we beat. roll. Yeah. Well, uh, we've been in this series called "Old Dead Guys," where we're looking at some of the uh, church fathers, some of the the generation of Christians after the apostles. And uh, one of the things that we're trying to do is it, this is for our own edification. I mean, you guys are just kind of sitting in on a conversation between me and Paul because we That's talk right. about this stuff all the time and we're learning this stuff. So we're reading through some of the works of these early uh, church theologians. And the goal is that we uh, would, would be able to get a better understanding and better grasp of the foundations of our faith and looking at Christians who, uh, what they practiced, what they believed, what they argued over back in the first couple centuries of the church. So we've gone through a couple people. We've looked at Clement of Rome, looked at Ignatius, Polycarp, uh, different Irenaeus. Irenaeus. We looked at the Didache, which was an early Christian text. And it's amazing how many things that we still hold in common with the saints of the past, which gives you a lot of confidence in what we believe as Christians, because sure. it having a long tradition and a history behind what you believe shows that it withstands the changing of cultures, of kingdoms, of the shifting sands of philosophies and ideas. And yet the Christian faith continues on. So I think it's been a great adventure to say the least. Wouldn't you agree, Paul? I totally agree. Amen. Today we're going to be looking at Clement of Alexandria and, uh, so this is the second Clement that we've looked at, and we're going to look at one of his texts called "Who Is the Rich Man That Shall Be Saved?" And that uh, he's written a, a couple, he's written a decent amount of works, but this one in particular, uh, he, he takes aim at the temptation of riches, and he has a very, I would say, developed theology of money and possessions. Mm. What's interesting about these early church fathers is sometimes they can be a little kooky. You read some of their stuff and you're like, man, that's a little extreme or they can be fanciful with some of their interpretation of scripture. And it's challenging. And I think it ought to give us some humility and and say, you know, that Christianity is a little more broader than we think. And it's developed in a lot of significant ways. Um, So there's a lot that can be said about that, but it is great to see some of the the ways in which the early church was trying to figure out, straighten out, formulate, clarify the teaching of scripture. 
what it was teaching and what it was it was calling the church to in their day and age. That was a good but, list uh, of verbs, by the way. Thank you. Formulate, articulate, clarify, gesticulate. <laughs> gesticulate. Yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> well, let's gesticulate back to uh, to let's this to this text. Can you give us a little background on Clement of Alexandria? Yeah, he is. Uh, so we know he's famous for being part of the theological school in Alexandria. And he was a convert to Christianity. Both of his parents were pagans. And so he grew up in a pagan context, but he converted um, in life. And one of his students uh, actually went on to be a really famous Christian early thinker whose origin, who was also um, in Alexandria, Northern Egypt. We're not exactly sure when he was born, not exactly sure when he died, but the rough dates are something like 150 to 215 AD. So think like, mid second century to the end of the second century. Um, and yeah, so he was very well educated. So we can see now there's a development in um, Christian thought from the first generation of the apostolic fathers, where we saw Polycarp, uh, not super well educated. He was just like a, you know, pastor type figure, but here Clement Clement is really well-educated. He really knows Plato. He really knows the Stoics. He really knows Greek philosophy. Uh, and so far of all the church thinkers that we've surveyed, he's the one who's probably the most well-educated in Greek philosophy and is the most influenced by it as well. So he's, he's a sort of, you know, wealthy, upper-class, well-educated pagan who becomes a Christian and becomes a Christian teacher um, and has a very, you know, direct influence on origin and then subsequent Christian thought after him. So he's Alexandria was a big deal. Yeah. Too. One of the, one of the five big, uh, what are called the Christian seas or the Christian, uh, centers in the early church. So this is a place where you would get educated in the Christian faith. You'd become, uh, what's ordained. You would, you'd become, you know, is a center sure. of learning for the scriptures and all that stuff. Okay. So yeah. this guy's Clement's obviously a really smart guy. Mm -hmm. uh, was he a Bishop? He was not a Bishop. Um, I don't, I don't think he even had an official title, but I can double check that real quick. Was he published he by uh, Crossway? He was actually published by Zondervan. Zondervan, <laughs> of course. Yeah. Uh, no, he was. So according to the internet, <laughs> he was uh, a Christian thinker, Christian theologian. Don't think he held any actual office. See, this is this is what our our podcast is, offers. That's unique. Most podcasts are well researched. They prepare. They think about it. <laughs> but what what gives us a lively, you know, energetic vibe? What this is why our 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 dialogue is so infectious and enjoyable to listen to. We don't prepare at all. We don't know what we're talking. Just don't know what you're talking about. And we want to be relatable. We want to be relatable. We're learning. <laughs> <You're>, <laughs> Paul's lights just went out in his office. That was terrifying. Are they motion sensors? They are motion sensors. That actually did scare the crap out of me. It looked like you were uh, <laughs> held hostage in like a basement somewhere. And you're like sending out all transmissions to all <laughs> something like that. I don't know. I've but, been sitting uh, here for way too long. But I yeah, know. no, it's, it's fun because people get to learn right along with us. Like That's we just right. learned something and you guys just learned something. Um, funny enough, so Clement is not held in the same esteem across all of the Christian uh, traditions. Really? 
Yeah, he's reviewed. He had some haters. Clement had some haters. He did have some caters. Uh, in the 10th century, caters. the 11th century. <laughs> <laughs> caters. Um, in the 11th business. century, <laughs> in the 11th century, he was removed from the list of like early saints to be venerated by the Catholic Church because of his like um, influence on Origen, who was also seen as sort of a heterodox thinker. So the Eastern Orthodox were like venerate him, see him as a saint. The Anglicans do Ethiopian Christianity, Coptic Christianity, but the Catholics, the Western Church does not. Really? So mm-hmm. But the Anglicans do? Yeah. Go but figure. the Anglicans are part of the Western Church. They are. Maybe this is the sign that they're the true church. Oh, gosh. Because they actually well, revere Clement. <laughs> let's... <laughs> well, here's the maybe the Catholics didn't like it because he talks so much about money. Oh, shots fired. Oh, snap. That's right. This is how we go viral. But uh, so who is this? Who is the rich man that shall be saved? It's a little uh, writing that uh, that that Clement has on the subject of money. And uh, right off the bat, one of the things that he just he talks about is is displeasure, distaste uh, for, for what he calls um, those who invest with divine honors, men wallowing in an execrable and abominable life. <laughs> and what is the principal thing? A liable on this account to the judgment of God and treacherous because although wealth is of itself sufficient to puff up and corrupt the souls of its possessors and to turn them from the path by which salvation is to be attained, they stupefy them still more by inflating the minds of the rich with the pleasures of extravagant praises and making them utterly despise all things except wealth on account of which they are admired. So he talks about how, you know, people who are wealthy, there's a temptation where possessions can corrupt you. You can become too worldly, but added to that temptation is the fact that everybody else celebrates you for having all this stuff. And he talks about it as being a dangerous and deadly disease. So Clement has some very harsh words to say about money that, frankly, I think is unsettling when you read it, because if you're an American, you're pretty much in the top 1% of all of humankind throughout all of history. Yeah. And uh, it is challenging to us. Now, some of the early church fathers can go a little extreme on becoming monks or you know, becoming vagabonds in the desert, nomads in the <laughs> desert. But uh, there is something challenging about the gospel and about Christianity that has to deal with our money and it needs to be uh, seriously considered. Well, I, I, I actually, so I was expecting him to, to be really, really harsh and excoriate the rich, but he actually came out pretty, pretty balanced and we can we can go That's into true. some of the specifics, true. Here, but I I was expecting like here's Clement of Alexandria, second century church father. He's going to be like, if you have any money at all, you're going to hell. But he he was nowhere near as. In some ways, I think my view is more extreme than his. But I was like, <laughs> he's oh, really he, well, uh, maybe depending on how we want to interpret Clement. But he uh, yeah he didn't go as far as I thought he would. But well, he starts off pretty much guns blazing a little bit. Right. Uh, and that's then, how he gets you in. Right. Right. But he does talk about how uh, 
prayer, he says, now prayer that runs its course to the last day of life needs a strong and tranquil soul. And the conduct of life needs a good and righteous disposition, reaching out towards all the commandments of the savior. So you're right. He's not talking about being rich automatically means you can't be saved. He just means that in general, you want a life where you have a strong and tranquil soul, right? And, and, and a life that bears righteous fruit. Um, and a life that obeys Christ. And sometimes money can prevent you from doing that, but he's not right. saying that it's bad in and of itself. And that certainly there's godly ways that you can use money. Um, it almost, it almost seems like he, the first couple sections he's responding to. So he's, he's talking for those of you who, I guess we should have provided some context. He's talking about the story of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus right. and uh, asks Jesus, what should I do to be saved? And Jesus says, keep the law. He says, I've kept the law. And then Jesus tells him one thing you lack, go and sell all you own and give it to the poor. And then the young man, you know, puts his head down, walks away despondent and doesn't uh, accept the call of the gospel. So he's giving a sort of commentary on that. Um, and he says that at first he wants to reassure rich people that they can still become followers of Christ. So he says that, uh, you might read that passage and say, well, Jesus says it's harder for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It's easy to read that as a rich person and to just say, well, I, there's no room in Christianity for me. And Clemens says two things. He says, one, with God, all things are possible. And that's what Jesus says in the same passage too, when his disciples ask him, well, who can keep this difficult teaching? He says, with God, all things are possible. So he's he's reassuring rich um rich people at the time who might've been interested in Christianity, there's still a way for you to join the church. Right. Right. And two, he's going to comment and nuance that teaching of Jesus just a little bit to make it less than extremely radical sounding, which is why I thought it was interesting for being from the second century. He's sure. sort of taking a pretty balanced approach. Can you open that up a little bit? What, what's the balance that he brings in? So he says ultimately that it's not, it's not the richness, like you were saying, per se, that is the sin. You can have money and be a Christian, and you can have uh, nothing and be a pagan. And so it's not just the material aspect of your life that determines how close you are to God, uh, because ultimately what, what he calls them are passions, that there are certain lusts and desires that we have. And if you're a poor person who has nothing, but you're greedy, you you have like sort of insatiable desires for wealth and a, a certain kind of lifestyle, then that itself is sin. And that could mean that you're farther away from God than the person who is rich, who has material resources, but sees them as, um, or sees himself as just a steward of those resources and uses them to uh, care for people and to remove afflictions and to alleviate suffering. And so I think the, the important insight there is it's not the material thing itself that is the sin. It's what you do with it and what your lusts and desires are underneath it. So that's, that's how he compares the poor man and the rich man. So you can have an evil poor man. You can have a godly, pious, rich man. Um, so it's not just intrinsically the material stuff. He, he makes another comment about the rich young ruler where he says that one of the problems with the rich young ruler was that he did not truly wish life as he averred, 
but aimed at the mere reputation of the good choice. So mm-hmm. it goes to what you're saying. It's not that the rich man was rich and that's why he's like, and somehow he's unsavable, right? Because you were talking about, you can be a godly rich person if you steward it well. You can be a pagan poor person if you covet the rich and you and youth. A person who's poor but thinks about the rich all the time is thinking about money all the time, <laughs> right? They're still they're still possessed by possessions. They just don't have yeah. any. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I remember hearing, I think it was John Piper said something about self pity, where he said self pity is just unapplauded pride. <laughs> it's still pride. It's just, you just don't get an audience, you know, and, uh, and, and being poor, but coveting all this material stuff is still greed. It's just, you don't have money. <laughs> so, uh, but one of the things he points out about the rich man is that what he wanted, he's asking about eternal life, but he doesn't really want eternal life. What he wants is the reputation that he wants eternal life. He wants the reputation that he made the good choice. And he said uh, he was capable of busying himself about many things, but the one thing, the work of life, he was powerless and disinclined and unable to accomplish. So it's really the state of his heart. Mm. Uh, the, the, the issue with the rich man is not that he was rich. It's that he did not actually want to follow Christ. Right. Uh, yeah. But he wanted to seem like he wanted <clears throat> to do that. Hmm. And uh, I, I think about, we, we mentioned uh, when we were doing C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, we talked about that kind of false kind of generosity. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, where it's uh, a man who tips the waiter a ton of money uh, will get a reputation of being a generous person, but it's still yeah. self-serving <clears throat> in a back, backhanded way. Or the person who's super hospitable or throws big parties. Yeah. You right. Essentially there you're, you're, you're building a reputation of someone who's got a lot and who's really generous. And some people crave the reputation of being generous rather than actually being actually a generous being person. Generous. Yeah. Right. Right. I think about in, uh, in Luke, see it's Luke 13 or 14 when he does the parable of the, uh, the wedding banquet, at the beginning, before he tells the parable of the wedding banquet and the, and the feasts and the invitations and all that stuff, he says, uh, give to the people who can't give anything back to you, right? Mm. If you give to people who are rich and important or people who can, if you can gain something from giving, then that's not really the kind of generosity I'm talking about. Give to the, he says, rather give to the crippled and the poor and the lame, because then God will reward you, right? God will reward you in the resurrection. But, uh, don't don't do there's a way of being there's a way of flaunting your wealth that looks very spiritual there's Mm. a way of gaining the praise of men that looks like you're humble and it's a very uh shots fired yeah we're very good (laughs) at at being manipulative like that i would say yeah it's it's interesting he he ties the the error of the rich young ruler to the same lesson that Jesus tells Martha in right. the gospel of John. Right. So, so he, he points out that in both these cases, Jesus is correcting by saying you lack one thing. And the la- the one thing for the young ruler was the riches. And the one thing for, for Martha was that she was busying herself. And, and the, so it, it's that same error that you pointed out, the one of wanting to be noticed, the one of wanting to be seen as, um, being busy with the religious life 
so that you actually miss out on being a godly person. You, you're so um, preoccupied with being seen as being pious that you're not actually being pious and truly caring about right. people. Um, and yeah, that, that's, that's pretty condemning or convicting. How many times do we do that? Well, I never do that. <laughs> I mean, I do it all the time. That's why I'm trying to help you, but right. Yeah. You're making Thanks. progress, but he does <laughs> talk about selling your possessions and <laughs> Clement's like, and what is this? And he basically says, uh, he's not saying you should throw away every substance you possess and abandon your property. But, and here's the quote, but rather he bids him banish from his soul, his notions about wealth, his excitement and morbid feeling about it, the anxieties, which are the thorns of existence, which choke the seed of life. So again, he's talking about the love of money. He's saying, when I tell you to sell your possessions, I'm not saying you should become homeless, right? Because it, it would make no sense. Jesus is telling you to feed the poor and give <clears throat> money to the poor. Right. But if he wanted everyone to be poor, then why would he tell you to do that, right? But what he is talking about is taking stock of whether your possessions are possessing you. And I think that that's the way that he explains it is talking about this excitement and morbid feeling about it. This sort of my money is life or death, all the anxiety is associated with money and all that anxiety can make you make unethical decisions. They can turn you away from your faith. They can make you prioritize the wrong things. I remember uh, we were filming. I might've shared this on the podcast before we were filming this guy in uh, San Francisco who was a wealthy man. And he said that he wakes up in a panic in the middle of the night thinking that like being anxious about losing half his money, which he's a billionaire. If he lost half his money, he'd still have $500 million. <laughs> but uh, money does have that grip on us because it's very much tied to a sense of security. And it's not saying that money shouldn't give us some security, you know, but there is a, a, a type of attachment to material wealth and possessions that can turn us into people who are willing to make unethical decisions, sinful right. decisions. And, and at the risk of, we don't want to sound too like <clears throat> heady and abstract because he does give like pretty concrete uh, steps to make sure that you're not in that category that he's talking about in section 14. Oh, wow. I just had to decipher Roman numerals for I the know. first I'm time. Like, in like <laughs> X, X, I, I, I. <laughs> At the X, I, X, I, 5, 14. <laughs> he says, <laughs> riches, which benefit also our neighbors are not to be thrown away for they are possessions and goods um, in as much as they are useful and provided by God for the use of men. And they lie to our hand and are put under our power as material and instruments which are for the good use. Um, if you use it skillfully, it is skillful. If you are deficient in skill, it is affected by your want of skill, being itself destitute um, of blame. So, so he's saying here that wealth is an instrument and God gives the instrument to us. And so he's not saying that we don't have ownership over our stuff, but we have ownership in this kind of derivative way that we're stewards and there's a way to use your money good, like well and poorly. Um, right. It's nature is to be subservient, not to rule. Right. 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 Yeah. So, so it's not, if, if you completely owned it, then no one could ever tell you that you're doing something wrong if you hoard it yourself. Right. But the fact that you can use it poorly 
is an indication that it's not totally completely yours. Right, right. You have it as a steward and it's an instrument that can be used well or poorly. And what does it look like to use it poorly? And this is where he invokes that Matthew 24 passage of Jesus saying, those of you who saw me hungry, gave me something to eat. Those of you who saw me thirsty, gave me something to drink, saw me naked and clothed me. Clemens says that our resources are to be used to fulfill the Matthew 24. So the resources we have are not intrinsically evil, but they're to be wielded well to meet the challenge of Matthew 24. And it's almost like, I'm wondering if maybe there was like a vein in the early church that saw poverty as intrinsically good. Like take all your right. gold, throw it in the sea. And Clement right. is like, that's not the Christian life. It's, it's not just about being poor for poverty's sake. It's if you can use your resources to, um, to help people and alleviate suffering. Like, like the goal is to, to use your money wisely and to care about people. It's not about poverty for poverty's sake. Like there's right, some, right. some genuine spiritual merit in being a poor person. Um, it's you've got this resource. Don't use it poorly. Uh, use it actually in service of the poor. And that's how you answer the call of the gospel. Well, he says, it is then of no advantage to him to be poor in purse while he is rich in passions. Mm. That's a great line. In other words, you could be poor, but if your passion is still for money, if your passion is still this love of money, or if you're still obsessed with money, then it doesn't (laughs) know advantage. So Mm. he probably is railing against sort of this ascetic, uh, lifestyle that that right. true godliness is giving up all these things. And there's a great uh, article from years back by Dr. Anthony Bradley about the new Phariseeism. And he takes aim at quote unquote radical Christianity about how a lot of millennials and postgrads are feeling burnt out because they thought that they had to become these like radical world-changing Christians, when in fact, the majority of people are just going to settle down, have a family, raise kids, have grandkids, work a job, you know, <laughs> have, you know, a little a house and all that stuff. And, and sort of this, there is a proper way to sort of denigrate the American dream that I think is helpful to be like, hey, let's reconsider what the American dream is. And then there's an unhelpful way where we just, it's a very naive understanding of money, a naive understanding of the world. And it can sort of foster a self-righteousness where you think because I'm sacrificing so much, I'm better than these other people, you know? Right. And, uh, and that's still a sinful passion that somebody is doing. And instead we should think, why are we renouncing possessions? Uh, it's not so that we can be homeless and poor, right. That, that, that would be counterproductive, but rather that we would make right use of them. And like you said, right use means there's a wrong use. And the fact that you can have a right or wrong use assumes that the money that you have was meant to be used for something and not used for another thing. Now, who determines Mm -hmm. that? Well, God gives you all of that wealth. Um, And that's supposed to be uh, the, the the way that we live our lives. Yeah. And um, I I like that. uh, what was it? The quote you said purses over passions or passions over purses yeah. or it's no advantage to him to be poor in purse while he is rich in passions. Mm. That sounds like a, sounds like a Zondervan bestseller that needs to come out at some point. There you go. Um, there you go. He, at, at, uh, at one point he says, um, so he's, he's contrasting. I think, I think this is another little insight that he's getting at here. He's, he's understanding the goodness of poverty 
as poverty in spirit not necessarily poverty in materiality. And he says this over and over and over again. He says, the one who is blessed by the Lord is the one who is called poor in spirit, who is an heir of the kingdom of God. Um, so it's, it, and he says, it's not the one who's not rich. It's the one who's poor in spirit. And, and that theme, like you pointed out earlier is, yeah, it, it is about passions and about desires and about what it is that is mastering your life. Um, for where the mind of the man is, there also is his treasure. He talks about that. And so if if you're poor, but your mind is constantly in treasure and wealth and wanting a certain sort of lifestyle that's lavish, then you're committing the same kind of error that the rich young ruler is. And so again, it's not, it's not that these two are diametrically opposed. There is, you you can sin by having money, but it's not intrinsically due to the material stuff itself. It's in the underlying wielding of that. Again, it's an instrument that can be used skillfully or deficiently, poorly or well. Well, he, he actually takes a, he takes an illustration. He sort of gives a parallel where he says, he, he's trying to illustrate the point of what you just said, that again, we're, we're talking about a poverty of spirit. This is a disposition towards money. Uh, and he says, he gives an explanation or an illustration like this, but he who uses the body given to him chastely and according to God shall live. And he that destroys the temple of God shall be destroyed. An ugly man can be profligate and a good looking man temperate. <laughs> and I love that because he's basically saying, look, uh, 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 an ugly guy who's sleeping around, right? You could, maybe you could say this. You look at a, a good looking guy, you know, and you're like, oh, well, he's probably vain. You know, he's probably all about his looks and, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. And then you think an ugly guy is like, oh, he probably understands what really matters in life. You know, he knows it's not all about looks. It's like, well, no, an ugly guy could be just as adulterous and evil right, and right. lustful and vanity driven as anyone else. And a good looking guy could be temperate, you know, and, and humble and chaste, you know, and, uh, and the ugly obviously guy might, might not have the same opportunities to. So he's that's just like, true. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah, it's, sometimes it's like, well, you're sexually chased because of lack of options or something. <laughs> it's like, uh, that's what he's saying. And he's like saying, well, that doesn't count. You know, if you're a, a guy who <laughs> this ugly man, it's like, look, you know, you just might not have the opportunity. That doesn't mean that you're, that doesn't count as chastity. <laughs> you know, right, it just, right. that just means that you, uh, you need to step up your game there, son. You know, but but it, obviously, but it, could, it could also be that it could also be that you know sometimes the physical stuff does actually it comes as a grace to you. Like if you are very unattractive, then maybe that's God. You know, God blessing you with ugliness to prevent you from Paul, doing something. You're stupid. not that ugly. Just don't <laughs> don't self deprecate yourself. I was I was saying this for your sake, Brian. I know I'm the I know I'm the good looking temperate man, but you're the stud. Is, that's right. That's right. But, you know, the point being, though, I, he kind of he turns it on its head a little bit. And he, he says, like, you know, you, you can't um, you don't want to look at a rich person and just automatically think they're terrible. Just like you don't want to look at a good looking man and think that he's, you know, vain. Um, but on the flip side, it's like, but there are certain temptations. I mean, I would imagine that a man who's rich would be more tempted to find security in his possessions than somebody who wasn't. And maybe a good looking man would be more tempted to fall into vanity than someone else. So there might be some well, connection and, and, there. 
And and we can also still use Clement's insight here. Like Clement still says we can judge rich people as sinning when they look at the Matthew 24 criteria and don't meet those. When there are right. people around them who are sick and hungry and thirsty and they can provide for them, but they don't, like th- there is that would be an inappropriate way of using the resources. That would be a deficient way of using the resources. So again, the richness itself is not the sin, but we can still look at someone who has resources and doesn't apply them in the skillful way that Clement talks about and doesn't steward them well. We can say, yeah, no, that's, that is an instance of sinning because you're not stewarding the resources well. And, and, like no matter we, we love to to talk about the epistles and all of what Paul says about um, salvation, but we always forget that Matthew twenty four passage where Jesus talks about separating the sheep and the goats on the basis of who was the one who clothed the naked, yeah. fed the hungry, gave water to the the thirsty, visited those in prison. Like that's that's what Jesus that's out of the mouth of Jesus himself, and so Clement takes it seriously, and so should we. Well, in 30, chapter 31, at the very, very end, uh, Clement makes this comment where he basically says that we should take the attitude of God when we think about giving. And this is the attitude of God, which is this, it's, it's proactive. So he says, for truly is God's delight in giving. And this saying is above all divinity. What a great line. <laughs> this saying mm-hmm. is above all divinity, not to wait to be asked, but to inquire oneself who deserves to receive kindness. So in other words, the kind of charity that reflects God isn't to sit around waiting for people to ask you for money, but rather to be actively looking who needs to receive this kindness. It's Mm. a very proactive way of being generous. And uh, he's really pushing it to think this is sort of the very, the, the, the overwhelming liberality, I guess, if that's a word of God's kindness to people where he seeks out people to be kind to. And, uh, and that we should reflect that we should actually be active in looking. Um, and he says, the Lord, this is another word, a word of Clement. The Lord did not say give or bring or do good or help, but make a friend, but a friend proves himself such not by one gift, but by long intimacy. And so uh, he, he talks about how it's not even just, he goes so many steps beyond just write a check to some people to feel good about yourself, mm-hmm. but he essentially ties giving and kindness to forming a relationship, to making a friend, to treating someone else like a human being, you know, and, and actually putting yourself on their level. There's a way of being generous that's still, sort of elevates you and makes you in a different class than the other person. But I think one of the great mysteries of the incarnation is how God condescends to be like us mm. and that we in turn should be, should have that attitude of, no, I want to, I want to be proactive in finding people to do good to. I, I consider you an intimate challenge. friend, Brian. Oh, look at that. Well, that's because you have, uh, I don't even know, given me food. There you go. That's all I need. Beautiful. It's like, uh, it's, I, I think this is in Les Miserables, but there's that line that says, Oh, oh, Les Miserables. <laughs> you always say that it's, uh, 
never gets old. It gets funnier um, every time. <clears throat> yeah, you're right. It does. Um, to love a person is to see the face of God. <clears throat> and that sounds sort of like liberal and, you know, but we're good conservatives here. But there is an element of truth to that, that what it is like true love, true caring about someone else and putting someone's needs genuinely before uh, ourselves is the most godlike thing that we can do. When we look at the incarnation, it's the utter self-giving of God. God, mm -hmm. there was no obligation there. God didn't have to do that. And God gave us himself and uh, became our friend, became one of us, died for us, and then wedded himself to humanity forever, eternally to be one of us. And so to, to love someone in that kind of way, where there's nothing that you're going to benefit from uh, or take out of it, is to do the ultimate godlike mm -hmm. thing. And Jesus says the the greatest thing that you can do to love someone is to lay down your life for them. Um, and so here we've got lesser forms of love, of love, not laying down our life per se, but laying down our resources. But the the actions themselves are still godlike and Christ-like in their quality. This is a uh, yeah. He, he mentions the the apostle of love, the apostle John. In I think it's fifty two. Is XL fifty? <clears throat> no, that's right? forty. Oh, forty. Because <laughs> it's fifty minus ten. Okay. Yeah, I'll believe that. But he talks about how um, this narrative, I think he's probably, I mean, he's talking about the gospel, right? Handed yeah. down and committed to the custody of memory about the apostle John. For when on the tyrant's death, he returned to, Eph he's probably talking about Nero, I'd imagine. Yeah, it sounds Maybe. like it. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the, the Roman Caesars who, who persecuted Christians. Uh for when on the tyrant's death, he returned to Ephesus from the Isle of Patmos. So this is after he wrote Revelation. He's exiled, John the Bat or Apostle John was exiled to Patmos. He returns to Ephesus and he went away being invited to the contiguous territories of the nations here to appoint bishops, there to set in order whole churches and there to ordain such as were marked out by the Holy Spirit. This, this little throwaway thing, he's basically saying, look, John came back from exile, apparently. Uh, and then... Uh, he went to different churches and appointed bishops and set them into order. <laughs> and uh, we could probably, this would probably take a whole other. Yeah. I didn't even notice that. Yeah. A whole other podcast that we could talk about, but it is, it did look like the apostles were the ones who appointed bishops. Um, and Timothy was probably a bishop. Sometimes we think yeah. he's just a pastor, but Timothy was appointing pastors and he seemed to be over multiple congregations so there's a little bit uh of an interesting inference there um, you want to know something interesting i learned recently what what so some of the controversy about bishops in the first couple centuries is so about it's called mono episcopacy so whether or not there was one bishop per region hmm. so now like when anglicans and catholics talk about bishops there's one bishop per, and it's like a very well-defined area. Um, some scholars argue that in the first couple centuries, it was not defined like that. And bishops had like co-equal power. There was, it was not super well-defined in terms of what regions they were on. Sometimes there were multiple bishops in one area. Sometimes there was one bishop over two different mm -hmm. regions. Um, and so this is an, actually an argument you get from Presbyterians against the concept of the Anglican bishop. So there you go. Just to throw a, a kink 
in your neat little theory. Hmm. That's that's why is that an argument against it? Because they're saying that well, there wasn't like so, one bishop per region. Yeah. So like the the way we have bishops now is not the way there were bishops in the first couple centuries. Essentially, that bishop was a lot more of a slippery term than right. what we see today. So that there were multiple bishops in areas. Sometimes there were, and sometimes yeah. bishops had like larger jurisdiction, lesser. It was not like a very concretized. So how would Presbyterians? Why is that a? They would just say like that's like what a like a they had. They would say know, like would e be the, even if there were bishops in the first couple centuries, they weren't like what bishops are now. Okay. Yeah, so I was just curious as to how like Presbyterians think about all these bishops in the first couple centuries, and yeah, that's one argument that I came across. So they would say that the bishops are just presbyters they're elders yeah could be um or they're just like tim keller's <laughs> yeah who knows tim, the great the great pope of the great presbyterianism, pope of presbyterianism. <laughs> but uh good stuff i mean clement challenging stuff i encourage you to read this uh it's relatively short i mean i, I yeah. think it, it's it's a it's not that long of a read but a lot of great stuff who is the rich man that shall be saved probably find online for free you can find all most of these works for free all online. these yeah, yeah just google them right but uh really good stuff we're gonna be back looking at some more uh different church fathers but if you are interested in learning a little bit more about these guys you want some more resources you can follow us on uh, that uh, instagram it's that'll preach podcast that's our uh handle and uh, you can also dm us if you have any questions or if you'd like our thoughts on certain topics. We will just give the uncut, unfiltered opinions because uh, no one can cancel us because nobody knows about us yet. So <laughs> there we go. But uh, thank you guys for listening. We'll be back next week.